So what are some of your biggest stressors in life? Just shout it out for us. Children. Children. I'm glad the kids are down the hall there so they didn't hear you say that. Or is that your adult child you're talking about? Yeah. What's that? Adulting is stressful. Haven't, haven't done that yet. What else? What was that? Comparison. Comparison with ourselves, with people our own age. Yeah, that never ends, does it? Yeah. What else did I hear? This life itself. It can be. Well, Capital One did a survey, and they discovered that 59% of us, our biggest stressor is politics. Uh, For 49%, the biggest stress is work. 46%, the biggest stress is family. And uh, the winner, 73% finances. For 73% of the people in the United States, finances is the biggest stressor of all. Money stress is even higher for younger kids. 82% of Gen Zs and 81% of uh, millennials. It starts at an early age. As a dad gives his kids some money, this is money, get ready to worry about it for the rest of your life. (laughs) We really do worry about that. The good news is that 42% of Americans think that they're going to be off better off financially this year than they were last year. I guess that means that, do your math, majority don't think they're going to be better off than they are this year. Uh, And the bad news also is, although 42% think they'll be better off financially, most of us don't know how to get there. We think we'll be better off, but we're not sure the pathway to be better off. And the other bad news is I don't have a clue to how to help you on that. So I don't know why you're here today. We're calling this series uh, Guilt-Free Wisdom on Money, and I do not promise that you're going to get any wisdom out of me on this topic for the next four weeks, but I will try to walk with you through some things that uh, some people who are a lot smarter than I and more inspired than I uh, have to say about this. So that's what we're going to do in this series, and our topic today is, as uh, Chris said, less is more. And Joey, I do like your haircut, by the way. Uh, you've got great hair regardless of the length of it, but it, it looks good. Less is more. I like that. Now, if you're like me, you've been programmed to think that more is better. Uh, if you have one of something, you're better off if you have two of something. In fact, our entire economy is built on getting more and more and more. Consumer spending represents 70% of our GDP, which is uh, the primary measure of the United States economy. And the bottom line is, if we quit buying stuff, the economy collapses. And it could be catastrophic for the country. And so our entire system is built on more is better. Not less is better. So we are motivated and we are driven from all sides to buy more and more stuff. Experts tell us that we'll see anywhere from 40 to 500 advertisements, commercials every day. All of those ads are compelling us to buy more stuff. And nowhere are we more compelled by advertisements than we will be next Sunday night during the Super Bowl. A 30-second 
uh, ad in this year's Super Bowl is $7 million. Companies believe that they're going to benefit from putting ads next week. Let's go back to 1967, the very first Super Bowl. Some of us will remember that ad. Those, these are the companies that will be advertising next week. But go back to 1967, the first Super Bowl between the Chiefs and the uh, Packers. The Packers beat us like 35 to 10. I love Hank Stram there on the left. And do you all recognize number 16? Lenny Dawson. Look what he's uh, drinking down there. A fresca. And during halftime, he's smoking a cig. <laughs> Things have certainly changed uh, since 1967. But I still love Lenny Dawson. Well, the cost of a Super Bowl ad, uh, 1967 for 30 seconds, was around $37,000, which is still a pretty good amount of money, that is for sure. Well, one of those ads that I was so intrigued with when I was looking at this teaching for this week was by Goodyear. And uh, the Goodyear commercial for the Super Bowl halftime was, uh, showed a woman who had a flat tire. And uh, she didn't know what to do. Of course, women didn't know how to change flat tires. And there was a narrator who would say something like, a flat tire needs a man. And the Super Bowl advertisers did not expect women to be watching the Super Bowl at that time. 46% well, of the audience last year's Super Bowl were women. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the Taylor effects will have on the viewership uh, next week. But the idea is that advertising is a part of our culture. Uh, advertisers want us to buy stuff. The government wants us to buy stuff. It is very difficult to live simply in the United States because we are pulled from every side to more, to have more and more. And we are taught that more is better. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Scripture says this, however. Better is one handful, you can say one handful of money, with some peace, with tranquility, than it is to have two handfuls of money. With that two handfuls of money, you will have toil, and you'll have the chasing after the wind. You'll have uh, the goal, if your goal is to get satisfaction with those two handfuls of money, it's going to be like chasing after the wind. You're never going to catch it, and you're never going to find it. So one handful of contentment and of meaningful, pur purposeful uh, living is better than two handfuls that are clenched, that are holding that money tight, and they're clawing, and they're scraping, and they're pushing, and they're pulling their way to the top of the ladder. Uh, I loved what Chris said in the intro to the song about where he and Morgan live. When Denise and I, her first year that we were married, we had a pretty decent apartment, two, two bedroom and a living room, and it was really very nice there in Little Rock. Then we moved to Fort Worth when I finished up seminary for the next two years, and our, our apartment was about 300 square foot, and our bedroom and the living room were the same room. And Denise, this was the day when I didn't do much cooking, uh, Denise could stand at the stove, and she could fix what's on the stove, put it on the table, take it off the table, and put it in the sink without moving. <laughs> it was just all right there. And uh, when we got our first church in Wooster, Arkansas, it was, it was just like a mansion. 
And uh, it, was, it was a parsonage. Baptist churches at that time had houses for their pastors, and it was a nice house. And uh, then we came to Springfield, and I pastored Jefferson Avenue Baptist Church in 1984. And uh, we rented a house uh, that was built in 1936. And uh, that house had two bedrooms and one bath, a living room and a kitchen. And in each bedroom had one closet that was about four feet wide. 1936, I guess you just didn't need very big closets. You know, a typical man in the house would have had maybe one suit, wear that to church, or if he had a job that required that, he'd wear that to work. And maybe he'd have two dress shirts. He'd have a casual shirt, casual pants, maybe one pair of dress shoes and one pair of casual shoes. But you just didn't need a whole lot. Well, the house that Denise and I live in right now, we've got, uh, we've got a walk-in closet. Now, some of you have a walk-in closet, and some of you have a walk-around closet. Eight laps is a mile. There are some closets in the, in the, in the city that are extremely big. So we have a walk-in closet filled with our clothes. We have two closets downstairs in our house that are filled with clothes, we have a guest bedroom upstairs that uh, has a closet, and it's filled with our clothes. And so we have gone from that little apartment in seminary where I don't even remember where the closet was uh, in that little room uh, to our house on University Street here in Springfield and then to this house where we have maybe six closets in the house, and every one of them were just packed with clothes. And then we walk into that closet and I say, I've got nothing to wear. <laughs> and I've just got bukus of clothes. You, some of us remember George Carlin. He recorded an album back in 1981 and it had uh, a, a bit called uh, Stuff. And he says a house is just a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. And so what do we do? When we run out of room in our house for our stuff, we put it in the attic. We run out of room in the attic, we put it in the garage. I've seen some of your garages. <laughs> I've walked through our neighborhood, and I've seen some of my neighbor's garages. Now, what's a garage built for? Yeah. But some people have so much stuff that they run out of room in their house, they run out of the room in their attic, and now they're putting their stuff in the garage and they're parking their garage or their car outside of their garage. It's just overflowing with stuff. And then, this is crazy to me, we buy more stuff. We run out of room in the attic, the, the garage, the closets in the house, the storage room in the house. And so we go out and we buy a storage place and we pay somebody else to watch our stuff. And it's stuff that we never use, stuff that we never even see because it's a mile away in a storage place somewhere. We just have so much stuff. Do you think we have too much stuff? Jesus was a great storyteller. One particular story that I want us to look at this morning is found in Luke chapter 12. It revolves around a very independent thinking, a very successful entrepreneur, the story unfolds as a dialogue between Jesus and this guy who feels like he's getting ripped off. 
Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's a modern-day issue. Uh, the folks have died. This guy's brother is the executor, and this guy's brother as the executor took all the stuff. And so this brother is saying, tell my brother to give me part of the stuff. And here was Jesus' response. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Jesus knew his lane. He is not a financial advisor. He's not an attorney. That is so interesting. I need to know my lane. I shouldn't even be talking about money, but I am. But Jesus did. He didn't really answer the guy's question. I got to scratch my head about that. He never did tell the guy that he should or should not get part of his dad's and mom's stuff. Anyway, then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's not a bad statement to put on the bottom of a graduation diploma. You've just got your master's degree in business, your MBA. Put that on the bottom of the diploma. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then Jesus told a story about this little principle. He told them the parable, the land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. I'm not a farmer. I don't know crops. I don't know animals. I just like it when both things are on my plate. And I don't really know how they got there. I like the veggies and I like the animals. Not as much animal as veggies, but I like it. And that doesn't really relate well to me, storing crops. So maybe it does or doesn't to you, but you could paraphrase this. Uh, a certain physician saw his uh, patient base grow, or a certain firm saw their client base grow, or a salesperson uh, just had a banner year and the top salesperson of the company. But the money was just rolling in. A great year. And so what do I do with this extra money? What do I do with these extra crops? And that's the scene. So the man in Jesus' story has a conversation with himself. And the man asked, he thought to himself, so what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He needs to do something with his profit. What am I going to do with all this extra money? What am I going to do about my own prosperity? And so he says this. I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Well, I'll just plow it back into the company. I'll open up another office, open up another branch. We'll make this thing the largest thing going. Why would he do this? Because somehow we are taught in our culture and even in Jesus' culture that more is better. If I only get more, then I'm going to be happy. If I only get more of that elusive dream out there, at some point, at some level, I will meet the deepest needs of my soul. If I buy the latest greatest laundry detergent, if I buy the latest, greatest car, or whatever, that's going to be the answer to my needs. Or maybe not. Because something happens to the man. Something that he, he did not have in his business plan. He died. 
I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and celebrate. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded back from you. But who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Maybe you've heard the old sermon illustration. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. Well, there goes that sermon illustration this says. Yeah. But the principle is true. Anybody that's ever enjoyed uh, KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, has Colonel Sanders to think. And he said this, there's no reason to be the richest man in the cemetery. You can't do any business from there. Now, the teaching from this philosopher in Ecclesiastes and the lesson from Jesus' story, those two things that we see in the Hebrew Scripture and in the Christian Scripture are not attacks on prosperity. You will never find in Scripture an attack on money. What you will see over and over again is an attack on the love of money. This is not an attack on prosperity, but it, it's almost like the writer of Ecclesiastes and Jesus himself are just begging us, if not warning us, about the wrong priorities. It's not, about, it's not against prosperity. It's against the wrong priorities. Jesus is pleading with us. Warning us against letting this pursuit of more and more and more to steal our sense of peace and contentment and happiness. 600 years before Jesus walked the earth, there was Buddha. And Buddha said this, happiness will never come to those who fail to appreciate what they already have. A couple of years ago, we watched the news story about Lori Laughlin, who was sentenced to <clears throat> to, excuse me, two months in prison along with her husband for this uh, graduation uh, in college enrollment scam that they did in, uh, at USC. She was sentenced to two months and her husband was sentenced to five months. And during the hearings, U.S. District Judge Nathaniel Gorton addressed both defendants. And said, here you are, an admired, successful, professional actor with a long-lasting marriage, two apparently healthy, resilient children, more money than you could possibly need, a beautiful home in sunny Southern California, a fairy tale life. Yet, you stand before me a convicted felon. And for what? For the inexplicable desire to grasp even more. You had enough, but your desire for more landed you facing federal prison. Now, this is not a line, this is not a sermon <clears throat> to uh, get on to Lori. <clears throat> I've got a problem with more. You ought to see my sock drawer. <laughs> yeah. I could have a whole closet just for my socks. We all have a problem with more. She can just afford 
a higher level of more than I can. <clears throat> but we are all driven by this desire for more. So how do we find this happy single handful? How could we, we be, be content with that? And how can we find in that hand contentment and peace and tranquility that the writer of Ecclesiastes spoke of? The very first coin that was minted in the United States, designed by uh, Benjamin Franklin, and the, the team that minted it had on it a member who was a, at the time a black slave, uh, very wasn't compensated obviously for his work, but he was a part of that minting. And that very first coin of the United States has in it some symbolism that I think helps me a little bit understand how I can have a handful of peace with a more simple life. If you look at the coin, maybe you'll see on there uh, this word, well, I'll put it right there, fugio, that's a Latin word. And that Latin word, fugio, uh, literally means, let me lost, literally means flies. It flies. And there you see here a sundial. You see the sun. And so it's almost like Benjamin Franklin was trying to let us know Time flies. So be very careful how you use your time. Be very thoughtful about how you use your time. Make the most of your time. Find peace and happiness in the present. Don't put off a sense of happiness for that distant future where you're going to finally achieve more and more but learn to appreciate and live within the present moment. You'll see also on this coin, Ben Franklin put at the bottom, can you read that? Mind your business. Now we kind of add to that, mind your own business. I don't know if that's what Ben Franklin meant or not, but just in its very essence, I think Ben Franklin was telling us this. Your time is passing. So, get to the tasks that need to be done, whether that's business-related, whether that's relationship-related. Time is flying. Time is passing. Mind your business. On the back side of the coin, you'll see these rings. There are 13 of them, and I think it speaks to the unity of the colonies. In the middle of those rings, you'll even see the phrase, we are one. Benjamin Franklin it was just driven by this passion, this vision that we are connected, that we are one. That principle, I think, will help me simplify my life. Maybe it will you as, you as well. Because I need to understand that every decision I make, every purchase I make, every value that I express affects other people. I don't buy anything. I don't eat anything, I don't use anything that in some way does not affect every, everybody else. I've got to think about where I buy my clothes, what kind of employment situation are those people in, are they being taken care of, or am I buying products that are abusing children, 
the child labor. And on and on and on that goes. It makes me a conscientious consumer. And to simplify my life in that way. We also learn from this coin the very important point. That's just one cent. We don't think about one penny. We just throw pennies away. But what I see when I see that very simple coin is I think about that simple coin teaches me, and every time I see a simple penny, maybe I can think about the value of simplicity and to pursue a simple life. Maybe to live with less. Not, not be, because it's, it's wrong to have things, but maybe there's a principle there that that constant pursuit of more is taking away my ability to enjoy the present and to enjoy the people that I have in my life right now, to be able to look around me and to be grateful for what I have instead of complaining about what I don't have. The Buddha said this, that the root of all suffering is attachment. And I think he's right. If I wasn't so attached to things, I wouldn't be sad when I lost those things. Or if I wasn't attached to the concept of more and more and more, I wouldn't be sad if I don't acquire more and more and more. But maybe I could build a contentment and a sense of peace with those things that I do have. So ultimately, I believe that true contentment and true happiness and true peace comes from something outside of the things I've got in my closet. It comes with spirituality. It comes with nature. It comes with love. It comes with living with a purpose in our life and purpose in our mind. It also tells me to be grateful, to shift my focus from what I lack to what I have. Oprah Winfrey says this, the reason I've been able to be so financially successful is my focus has never ever for one minute been money. There's a lady in our church who had a timeshare. And uh, no, this is the wrong beach, wasn't it, Nisi? This very kind lady gave Denise and me a week at her timeshare on the beach on the Atlantic. But a couple of years ago, and I got my beach stories mixed up, we went to Portland, Oregon, and met Daniel and Devin, or Dan, no, Devin and Kylie, wasn't it, on, in Portland, our, our younger son and daughter-in-law. And it was on the beach, and it was very cold, very windy, and Denise and I were walking on the beach, and I always wear a hat, as you know, especially in the sun, and the wind caught my hat and blew it, <laughs> and it was the only hat I had for the beach, and so I wasn't going to let the wind take it away. So I, you know, a 65-year-old, started running down the beach, uh, puffing on my inhaler for my COPD every once in a while so I could keep on going. And it was, you, you've done it before. You chase a piece of paper in the parking lot. You reach down to grab it, and the wind picks it up, and it takes it again. And that's when I became an atheist because I just, I just... <laughs> If there was a God, why would God do this to me? Maybe God was enjoying the laugh. And it happened like a dozen times, it seems like. And I got so tickled at every time I tried to grab my hat, the wind would just 
pick it up and take it further. And Denise was laughing all the way, following me, and I was laughing. And finally, I just collapsed, and the hat was right there. I was just chasing a hat. And I got to thinking, how many of us are just chasing a hat, chasing the wind? What I had want, want to get to in my life is where I just enjoy and appreciate what I have. And if I never had anything else, I would be happy and content. Now, I'm not there. I bought some more socks this past week. <laughs> and I bought a Chiefs shirt last week that I'll wear next Sunday. But God's okay with that. And honestly, God's okay with me buying something. God is really okay with money. He's okay with wealth. He's okay with possessions. What he's not okay is with a heart that worships those things. With a heart that looks to those things to provide what only a true, genuine spirituality can provide. That's where I want to be in my life. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 16 says, Better is a little with respect for God than great wealth with trouble. Epictetus, who lived around 200 uh, in the common era, said, The key to a happy life is not to have what you want, but to want what you have.